All right, I am going to start out this morning with a YouTube video. And it's a very significant event in American history, actually recent American history. And you see in a moment here how this all ties into my message. And this video is about four minutes. And it's the resignation speech of Richard Nixon as he resigned the presidency. It was August 8th, 1972. Uh, how many of us were not even alive in 1972? Ah, you're going to learn a little bit of American history that you should be aware of. Daniel, let's go ahead. Good evening. This is the 37th time I have spoken to you from this office, where so many decisions have been made that shape the history of this nation. Each time I have done so to discuss with you some matter that I believe affected the national interest. In all the decisions I have made in my public life, I have always tried to do what was best for the nation. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere, to make every possible effort to complete the term of office to which you elected me. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. As long as there was such a base, I felt strongly that it was necessary to see the constitutional process through to its conclusion, that to do otherwise would be unfaithful to the spirit of that deliberately difficult process and a dangerously destabilizing precedent for the future. But with the disappearance of that base, I now believe that the constitutional purpose has been served and there is no longer a need for the process to be prolonged. I would have preferred to carry through to the finish whatever the personal agony it would have involved. And my family unanimously urged me to do so. But the interests of the nation must always come before any personal considerations. From the discussions I have had with congressional and other leaders, I have concluded that because of the Watergate matter, I might not have the support of the Congress that I would consider necessary to back the very difficult decisions and carry out the duties of this office in the way the interests of the nation will require. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress, particularly at this time with problems we face at home and abroad, to continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication 
would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the President and the Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issues of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. A big event in American history, recent American history. And why did Richard Nixon resign? He, he referenced it, didn't he? The Watergate matter was his phrase. Others would probably describe it differently. The Watergate scandal is what they would call it. But Richard Nixon and his administration were caught covering up a break-in at Watergate, which were the headquarters of the Democratic National Party. And what we probably find interesting is that Nixon probably wasn't even aware of the break-in at first. All right? He probably wasn't even aware that it had taken place, but became involved in it and covering it up. And I can say, I think with certainty, that he never envisioned that all of this would lead to his resignation as President of the United States. Wow. It seems so small, probably, at first. And then as it all continued to move forward with the cover-up, it became such a huge issue for him and for our nation. Open your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 11. You have notes. I would encourage you to take out your notes. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew probably in front of you. You need to take out a Bible and turn to Second Samuel chapter 11 so you can see that what I have to say comes from God's Word. And my message is titled, Uriah, David's Attempted Cover-Up. And so this morning we're going to be looking at David's attempted cover-up of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah. And I think I can say with certainty that the results of his sin and his attempted cover-up became much greater than he ever, ever, ever envisioned. Would you not agree with me? Is our passage this morning going to be relevant? Oh, you bet it is. In fact, move up on your seats, pay close attention, poke the person next to you and say, boy, this is relevant to our lives. And why is that? It's because we've all sinned and have attempted to cover our sins up. I won't ask for a show of hands. You don't have to show your hands because I know we've all been there. We have all sinned like David and attempted to cover over our sin. And in fact, I'm convinced of this, and I'll speak to it more pointedly in a little bit, that there are some here this morning that are covering over their sin. Now, my message this morning is going to be very pointed. They tend to be very pointed, but this morning even more so, as I'm aware of the fact that there are many here this morning who are covering over sin in their lives. And today's a day to get it right. Okay? Uh, my theme verse actually could come out of Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, 
where we read, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Oh, to conceal our transgressions, it, it becomes disastrous. And it did with Richard Nixon. It did with King David. And I will guarantee you the same will happen in our lives. Be not fooled. God's not mocked. What we sow, we shall reap. Yeah. All right, let's review. We've got a lot of guests. And it's kind of like, well, where are you at? Why are we talking about David and Bathsheba and his attempted cover up? We're studying the life of David, and, and I said, you know what? If, if I wrote a play on the life of David, I probably would have four acts. Uh, act number one would be his rise to prominence, where, where he's anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel, replacing Saul. He goes out on the battlefield and defeats Goliath. He becomes a mighty leader in the Israeli armor. This rise, uh, armory, the, this rise to prominence. Most of the folks are very pleased and excited about David. Everybody but in time Saul no longer because David's a threat to his throne. He needs to be eliminated. And so David spends some eight years. We spent a lot of time talking about David and his life on the run. Eight years fleeing from Saul. But finally, Saul is killed at Mount Gaboa by the Philistines, his son Jonathan. And so David becomes king, first over the southern part of Israel and then over all of Israel. He becomes this great king. Jerusalem is capital. The Ark of the Covenant comes back to Jerusalem. God enters into a great covenant with David. But then Act 4, David's... Remorse over bad choices, bad decisions. And that's where we were last week. Remember, we started Act 4. Remember, we flicked on and off the lights. It's kind of like, hey, it's time to find your seat. It's time for a new act, Act 4. David's remorse over his bad choices. So last Sunday was Bathsheba, David's great sin. And today, Uriah. David's attempted cover-up. And you know what? When we think of David, there's two stories we think of, right? There's two stories, Goliath and Bathsheba. But actually, you need to understand that what happens now in chapter 11 is a greater transgression, if we can speak of it that way, than Bathsheba. Yep. Because with Bathsheba, it's adultery. With Uriah, it's murder. And if you look at your Bibles, you see that as far as space given over to this account, some five verses are given over to Bathsheba, and some 22 verses are given over to his attempts to cover it up with Uriah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's the greater sin, if you will. It's where we need to give great attention I'm going to develop three points this morning. First of all, David's attempts at cover-up. Uh, second, the damage of David's attempt. So he's going to attempt to cover it up, but then we're going to see, boy, that it creates all kinds of disaster. And then finally, the foolishness of David's attempts. That's how we'll end. We'll talk about how foolish it is to think you can hide from God. So first of all, then, David's attempts at cover-up. He's going to attempt to cover this up. How, how does he do it? 
Uh, let me begin reading. We read with verse 6, Then David sent to Joab, and he sends to Joab when? After his affair with Bathsheba, and word comes to David from Bathsheba, I am what? I'm pregnant. David thinks, all right, I'll take care of this. I'll deal with this. And that's where we find ourselves. Then David sent to Joab, his commander, and said, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and, and the people in the state of the war. And then David said to Uriah, Hey, you had a tough time going. Why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? And, and Uriah went out of the king's house and a present from the king was sent after him. And Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, and David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? you got to be kidding me. By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, well, stay here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now, David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie in his bed with his Lord's servants. But he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Job kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Let me talk through the storyline. Uh, how does David attempt to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba? Well, David calls Uriah home from the battlefield under the pretense of wanting some sort of report. How are things going? And David gets his report, and, and then he sends Uriah home to his wife Bathsheba. At least that's his desire. Notice verse 8. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and a present from the king was sent after him. Wash your feet. John MacArthur says that is an idiom. And he notes, since this washing was done before going to bed, the idiom means to go home and go to bed. To a soldier coming home from the battlefield, it said boldly, Enjoy your wife sexually. Go on home. Clean up. Spend some time with your wife, some personal time with your wife. And we're told here that David even sends a present following Uriah. And we're not told what it is, but conjecture would lead us to think maybe he sent some food, a little bit of wine. Right? With the hopes that Uriah and Bathsheba would drink and be merry and have merry. Yep. Uh, but Uriah doesn't go home to Bathsheba. Instead, he spends the night with David's servants outside the palace. 
And so the next day, David calls in Uriah and asks, why didn't you go home? Well, you just came from the battlefield. I got a report. I sent you home. Why didn't you go home? And what does Uriah say? Verse 11. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this this thing. So Uriah in essence saying, hey, I swear by your life, I would never do such a thing. And so what a contrast we find here, don't we? What loyalty is being demonstrated? Uriah's loyalty towards David and towards the army contrasted with David's disloyalty towards Uriah and the army. What a contrast. We don't know a whole lot about Uriah, but you got to like the guy, don't you? you got to think, here's a man of character, Right? Well, David calls Uriah in again for a meal. They have some food and drink, and David gets him drunk. And what, again, is the desired end? Let's get you drunk, get you to lower your inhibitions, go home to your wife, you know. Just spend some personal time with her. But it fails again, and Uriah does what? He spends the night with the king's servants outside the palace. And so the next day, David sends a letter to Joab. And if this don't beat all, he has Uriah carry the letter of his own death sentence. And we read in verse 15, the content, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. And indeed, Joab follows orders, and that's what happens. Uriah is eliminated. I've got my notes here that David was probably not happy with his actions. He didn't feel the best, obviously, about what he had done. But he was probably relieved to think, I've dealt with this. It's been covered over. That was a bad mistake to think that, wasn't it? Yeah. So what all did David do in attempting to cover over his sin with Bathsheba? What what were his attempts? First of all, and I, I haven't mentioned this yet, but there was silence. We can attempt to cover over a lot of things with silence. We just don't say anything about it. You see, nothing had been mentioned until the word came, Hey, David, I'm pregnant. I need to deal with this in a different track. So he calls Uriah home, and there's this deception with Uriah, this disloyalty. He gets Uriah drunk, has Uriah murdered, if you will, and others with him. You see, Uriah wasn't the only one to die out on the battlefield. And he makes Joab an accomplice of his sin. Actually, of his sins. And so there's this growing spiral, isn't it? It starts seemingly small and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Thinking of David's attempt to cover over his sin, his sins, I got to thinking, how do we attempt to cover over our sins? Isn't that a good question to ask? Because I'm speaking to a group of people who who cover over sin probably on a regular basis, attempt to hide it. 
And I'm going to go through a list of some ten things here, and, and I've got a place in your notes, and my intent isn't to give you more ways to cover over your sin. Okay, let's get that straight. Uh, my intent is to say you're really good at covering over your sin. Mankind is really good at covering over his sin, her sin. How do we do it? Well, we see David doing it. How, how do we do it? Well, we just remain silent. We don't, we don't say anything. Right? Come on, now, talk to me. You don't have to get all silent. You're kind of silent anyways. It's going to be a very pointed message. But we, we just remain silent. We hope nobody says anything. You know, maybe I got away with this. We just go silent. Or we shift the blame to somebody else. Well, we're good at that. It wasn't my fault. You know, Fred here messed up. Yeah. Are, are we attempt to do away with any witnesses? That's what David wants to do with Uriah, right? Let's do away with Uriah. Are we do something good to salve our conscience? Yeah, I did bad, but I've done good and I feel a lot better about it. Right? Yeah. Or we just directly lie. What did Bill Clinton say? I did not have sex with that woman. Right? Right? Yeah, I'm giving you some American history here. Just lied about it. Or we hide the evidence. We, we want to brush it under the rug. Help me out here. Remember Achan, Joshua 7, took some of the booty from Jericho. And what did he do? He hid it under his rug in his tent. And maybe that's where that expression comes from. Yeah. Brush it under the rug. Are we minimize it? We just, we just make excuses. It's just not that big a deal. Are we redefine our sin? Uh, abortion is no longer abortion. It's a mother's choice. Adultery is no longer adulterous. And I, they had an affair, a, a fling, right? So we redefine it. It takes the edge off of it. We're good at that. Or we have somebody tell us what we did was okay. I'm just looking for somebody, as I've done this wrong, to tell me, you know, everybody would do that. You're really not that bad. You can forget it. Or we can deny it's even wrong. You know, just, hey, that wasn't wrong. Well, God said it was wrong. Well, you can interpret that any way you want in the Bible, right? Yep, so we deny it's even wrong. My point is, you... Me. We're really good at covering over our sins. We've got all kinds of ways we attempt to do it. Can I hear an amen? amen? Yeah. I know my audience pretty well. I'm 65 years old. I've lived quite a long life already. And I know that we can attempt to cover over our sins, and we do in a lot of different ways. Uh, Bruce Wilkinson, I had an illustration last week from him, Seven Laws of the Learner. Let me read again. He's got a section here on revival. Revival. And and what he's going to talk about is, is Bruce is at a large church, and it's a Sunday evening, and so he's walking out with the pastor of a large church, and they're kind of interacting. It would kind of be interesting to listen to their discussion. Well, well, here you go. What, what do those guys talk about when they walk out to the pulpit and sit on the stage there? We had just finished praying together and were walking to the huge auditorium for the evening service. I asked this popular preacher a question that has forever altered the way I prepare to minister to a Christian audience. And here's the question. 
In your opinion, what percentage of the average evangelical church members are out of fellowship with the Lord on any given Sunday? Uh, What is he asking him? How many people do you think here tonight are covering over sin and not in fellowship with God? Oh, hey, hey, that's what we're talking about with David, right? How, How many people? All right, well, listen, where do they go? I've never thought about it, he said, as we reached the door to the sanctuary. I expect it may be 15%, maybe as high as 25%. He must have continued chewing on that question because in the middle of the first hymn, he leaned over and he whispered, oh, what percentage do you think it is? Oh, I think it's much higher. 60%, perhaps 75%. He reacted with genuine surprise. Impossible. Not in a good church. Why? Well, what percentage of the people in the auditorium today or tonight do you think are out of fellowship? And if I told him the truth, he'd be upset. And if I didn't tell him the truth, the Lord would be upset. So I just said, I'm not sure. Because that was the truth. During the last stanza, I leaned over and I said, well, why don't you ask him and find out? That was a bit beyond his comfort zone. Well, I could see he was intrigued by the question. Before I stood to preach, he said, why don't you ask him? You're the guest speaker. So so I began my message by asking the congregation, your pastor and I were having an interesting discussion about what percentage of the people attending evangelical churches tonight all across the land are out of fellowship with the Lord. We couldn't decide, so we decided to ask you, would you vote on the percentage you think are out of fellowship by raising your hands? All of those who think less than 10% are out of fellowship. 20%, 30%. When we were finished voting, the average was, at least of their thinking, 75%. Oh, here I've got the rest of what I want to read here. Now let's get serious, I continued. What about this great congregation? What about the person on the left and on your right? What percentage of them do you think are out of fellowship? We voted once again. This time it was unanimous. 70% were considered to be living in some known sin at that moment. And were therefore out of fellowship with the Lord. In other words, covering over their sin. I've repeated that test in various churches around the country. And found that although the average fluctuates, it seems to be somewhere between 50 and 80 percent. 50 and 80 percent. Now think about that. And I won't quibble with him whether it's 50 or 80 percent. Let's put it on the low side. 50 percent. But Wilkinson's point as he talks about revival is that a majority of Christians in our evangelical churches today are living with unconfessed sin. Wow! What percentage is it here? Let's just be generous and say, well, it's somewhere around 25 to 30 percent. Brothers and sisters, our passage for our lives today is so relevant because if what Bruce has to say is true or anywhere near true, there are a good number of people here this morning who are covering over their sin. Wow. I told you I was going to be pointed this morning. First point. Covering over, that's David, covering over his sin. And I'm saying, you know what, we can really relate to this. We're good at it. We got it down. And not only do we know how to do it, there's a large percentage here, a good percentage here, of folks who are doing just that. Unconfessed sin in their lives. Wow. Point number two. 
the damage of David's attempt. Right, he's attempting to cover it over. We can relate because we attempt to cover sin over. So let's talk a bit about the damage. What is the damage that that is done? I don't know the first time I heard this. I think it was from uh, Curtis and his mom saying it, but sin will take you further than you thought you'd ever go and make you stay longer than you ever thought you'd stay and make you pay a much greater price than you ever thought you'd have to pay. Uh, so, so what was the cost to David? What was the cost to David with his sin with Bathsheba and his attempt to cover it over? Well, first of all, we could say the guilt and shame of unconfessed sin. The guilt and shame. And, and if you've ever felt guilty and done something, let's say, seriously wrong and felt guilt, it can be a heavy burden, can it? Oh, guilt can be a heavy burden to carry. And the shame... And then what goes along with it is the rupture of relationships. And with David, his relationship with God, he so valued his relationship with God, didn't he? And that's why we're so surprised that he enters into such wrong activity and then attempts to cover it over. Psalm 32 is a penitential psalm, a confession of sin. It's thought to have been written after his sin with Bathsheba. And notice what David says. Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Oh, when I kept silent about my sin, when I sought to cover it over, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. He's talking about the physical effects of guilt and shame. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Your spirit was haunting me day and night, bringing conviction of sin. And my vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. That's the cost. The guilt and the shame, the rupture of relationship with God. We all value as believers in Jesus Christ our relationship with God, right? And when we cover over sin... The guilt and the shame. What further damages were there? Well, his treatment of Uriah. Or we should say his mistreatment of Uriah. The betrayal. He knew this guy. He fought side by side with this guy in the battlefield. This was a friend of his. And so this treatment of his good friend, I think I'm right to say his good friend, and then his lying to Uriah, his getting him drunk and eventually having him murdered. The damage, not only Uriah as the army pulls back from him, but other soldiers were killed that day. Job made an accomplice. Job was the general of his army. And now he pulls Job into it all. And then, if that's not a law enough, Nathan confronts David. That's next week's message. Goes in to see him and call him out on his sin. And there's a realization that there's consequences, David, to your actions. And we read in chapter 12, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And, And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However... Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David, your actions, 
Your sin has brought about the blasphemy of God on the part of others because they look at you and your actions and they say, if that's how your God is, if that's the kind of God you serve, if that's where your God brings you, I don't want anything to do with them. And then the discipline of God. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. What damage. What damage? We should feel the, the, the weightiness of it. It's not like, well, let's just brush on past it. You know, it's no big deal. Sin doesn't carry much of a consequence, does it? Ask Richard Nixon. Ask David. There's a Russian parable that told about a Hunter raises his rifle. He's, he's hunting bear and he's taking careful aim. He sees this large bear and about ready to pull the trigger and the bear starts to talk to him. Soft, soothing voice and says, isn't it better to talk than to shoot? What do you want? Let's negotiate the matter. The hunter was intrigued, put down his rifle and he said, well, I want a fur coat. And the bear said, well, that's good. That's a negotiable question. I only want a full stomach, so let's negotiate a compromise. And they did indeed sit down to negotiate. And after a time, the bear walked away alone. The negotiations were successful. The bear had a full stomach and the hunter had a fur coat. Why? The bear ate him. Right? Compromise, unconfessed sin. It's, oh, I never, never thought it would come to this place. Never thought this. I thought I could get away with it, somehow cover it over. Oh, it's foolishness. And we've all done it. A lot of times. Uh, Our saying again, would you say that with me? Sin will take you further than you ever thought you would go, make you stay longer than you ever thought you'd stay, and make you pay a much greater price than you ever thought you'd have to pay. I got to thinking about, well, what what is the minimum effect? Because we in our sinfulness can think, well, what's the minimum? What foolishness? (laughs) What's the minimum effect of my sin? Well, first of all, there's the guilt and shame in our relationship with God and with others, right? Just like David, the guilt and the shame, and it's a heavy burden to carry. But but because of our sin, there's the violation of our relationship with God. And so because of that, there's the loss of the presence and God's power in our lives. That's what starts to happen. And then from there, it starts to affect one's family and one's church, right? We think that's no big deal. What is the minimum? Well, your relationship with God is affected. And now because of that, you lost the power and the anointing of God in your life. And it starts to affect everything. Everything starts to go bad in your life. It does. It does because there's not the power of God. So it's the positive things that are missing uh, people like to say, my actions are nobody's business if, if it only affects me, if it's done in the privacy of my home. And that is utter foolishness. Because our actions never only affect us. Who are you trying to kid? I did it in the privacy of my own home. It doesn't affect anybody else. Are you kidding me? Especially if you have a relationship with God, it affects all kinds of things. Right? All right, let's move on. 
We see David's attempts at cover-up. Then the damage of his attempts. Well, let's finish talking about the foolishness of David's attempts. Verses 26 and 27. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. She probably had no idea David had done this. Can you imagine further the guilt of David? Does he tell her? Did he tell her? When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. She bore him a son. You know, I actually think that David may in this have wanted to say, had do this so that it further covered over his sin, so that people would look and say, what a great guy David is. You know, his friend Uriah was killed, and he's bringing in his wife to take care of her. Huh? Huh. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so David attempts to cover over his sin, and, and it is such foolishness. It is such foolishness. Go ahead and chuckle kind of sarcastically. It's such foolishness because God sees all. It's like this kid, you know, kids play hide and seek, and they, they're trying to try to hide right out there in the open. It's kind of like, you've got to be kidding me. You don't think I see you? Hebrews 4.13, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's all laid bare before God. Well, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 139, talks about God's omniscience and his omnipresence. And it says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed and shell, behold, you're there. If I, if I take the wings of the dawn and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, hey, the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Isn't that something? You think you can hide from God? doesn't matter where you go. He sees. Foolishness. What foolishness. And yet, you know what? You've attempted it. I don't want to insult you too much, but you ain't very smart when you do that. And I've been there and done it, right? Yeah. 1999 Darwin Awards. What are the Darwin Awards? They're awards given for acts of stupidity. Uh, people who do really dumb things, they win the... I hope there's no Darwin Award winner here. Although we've all acted, as I'm saying, very foolishly in attempting to cover our sins. But this one happened in 1999. A runner-up, a, a Ronald Damoth. A Vermont native, let me read this, Ronald Damoth found himself in a difficult position while touring the Eagles Rock African Safari Zoo with a group of thespians from St. Petersburg, Russia. Mr. Damoth went overboard to show them one of America's many marvels. He demonstrated the effectiveness of crazy glue the hard way. Apparently, Mr. Damoth wanted to demonstrate just how good the adhesive was, so he covered the palms of his hand with the adhesive and, and jokingly placed him on the rear end of a passing rhinoceros. The rhino, a resident of the zoo for the past 13 years, was not initially startled as it had been a part of the petting exhibit since its arrival as a baby. But once it became aware of its being involuntarily stuck to Mr. Damuth, it began to panic and started running around the petting area, wildly making Mr. Damuth an unintended passenger. (laughs) 
We all wish we had our cameras out at that point, right? Forget trying to rescue the guy. i got to get this down. <laughs> James Douglas, the caretaker, said, Sally the rhino hadn't been feeling well lately. She had been very constipated, and we had just given her a laxative and some depressants to relax her bowels when Mr. Damon played his juvenile prank. The story continues. During Sally's tirade, two fences were destroyed. A shed wall was gored, and a number of small animals escaped. Also, during the stampede, three pygmy goats and one duck were stomped to death. As for Damuth, it took a team of medics and zoo caretakers to remove his hands from her buttocks. First, the animal had to be captured and calmed down. However, during this process, the laxatives began to take hold. And Mr. Damuth was repeatedly showered with over 30 gallons of rhino diarrhea. Yeah, yeah. The caretaker, James Douglas, said it was tricky. We had to calm her down. Well, at the same time, shield our faces by from being pelted with rhino dung. I guess you could say that Mr. Damuth was into it up to his neck. Once she was under control, we had three people with shovels working to keep an air passage open for Mr. Damuth. We were able to tranquilize her and apply a solvent to remove his hands from her rear. I don't think he'll be playing with crazy glue for a while. (laughs) What in the world was Mr. Demu thinking? He wasn't. Was he? He wasn't. What was David thinking when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and attempted to cover it all up and hide it from the Lord? He wasn't thinking very well, was he? And so our key verse, Proverbs 28, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Oh, to conceal it, you won't prosper. It needs to be confessed and forsaken. And what is the promise in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I preach for conviction of sin and encouragement to holiness and a desire to exalt Jesus Christ. And I can't help but think right now that the Spirit of God, if He indwells you, is speaking into some lives and really pointing, putting His finger on sin, covering over of sin. If the statistic from Bruce Wilkinson holds anywhere near true, there's between 25 and 50% of the people here this morning that are covering over sin. And with many of you, the Spirit of God is speaking into your mind and into your heart. And my encouragement is today is the day to confess your sin and get right with God. Today. David continued on for a long time, harboring his sin living with the guilt and the shame and all the ramifications from it until a very bold prophet sent by God went into his life and said, David, you have sinned and you must confess it. You need to get right with God. Last week I talked about adultery in Bathsheba, realizing that sexual sin is a real issue in the church today and said, hey, if this is you, you need to deal with it. I know in a congregation this size, there are people who have sexual sin they need to deal with. 
Sexual is sin aside, just sin that we're covering over. And so today's the day. Today's the day. You don't want to live at that place any further. Where you, see, you, you lose the vibrancy of relationship and all the repercussions. I'm really at, I'm twixt to how to conclude this service. We're going to sing. In fact, I'm going to ask that the praise team would come up now. Chris, if you'd come on up, we're going to sing, we'll come to the altar. And if the Spirit of God has His way in our lives, this altar probably should be filled across the front today. And I'm going to give you that freedom. Now, you know what's going to happen is the most of you who have covered over sin are going to feel like, oh, I don't want to go forward. I don't want to let people know. I don't want to tell you. I will give you an alternative. Talk to me afterwards. Call me this week. But you know what? I hate to give you an alternative. Because then it's kind of we're gone and and once more we're good at covering over our sin. And how do we cover over our sin then? We just leave church. Oh, the Spirit of God is dealing with my life. But boy, once I go on, get something to eat, watch a little football this afternoon, you know what? I'm feeling better again about life. What a shame. Isn't it? What a shame. So anyways, we're going to sing, and I'm going to be up here if you want to come forward. And it's just an opportunity for you to sit along the front if you want, and I'll be here afterwards. But don't do nothing. Don't do nothing. I I told you at the beginning, right, my message is going to be pointed. But that's where our passage has taken us, hasn't it? We look at David and we think, what what a foolish thing he did. And then he tried to cover it over. It's like, you know, I'm pretty good at that too. So maybe it's the day for you. I'm not a prophet. I'm a preacher. (laughs) Desiring to be used of God and bring about the transformation of life. Amen? Or do you want me to go preach someplace else? You want a preacher who just gets up here and, and just tells you some nice platitudes and wants you to go live life as, you know, however you want to live it. You don't want that, do you? Father, we give you praise. Your word is powerful. It, it really strikes into our lives. And then your spirit, he's like the second punch. Your word's the one punch. And your spirit's the one-two punch. And Oh, Father. Speak into our lives and make clear how you want us. I don't want people to respond because I preached with energy and and got pointed. I want people to respond because your spirit's at work. And whether they respond today, this morning, or later in the week, but not to do nothing. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with me, please. I'm asking you to do, if you need to confess your sin, what brings release. You know, I'm not asking, it's, it's tough to do, but there is joy. Are you hurting and broken within by the weight of your sin? You know, when we confess it and get right, oh, it's a good feeling, right? We've all been there where we've done wrong. and Once we get it off our chest, once we just acknowledge it, it's like, oh, it feels good to be right with Jesus. Amen. That's the hope. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and forgives sin. Amen. Chris.